Thank you so much, Ruth. Hi, everyone. It's it is nice to see you all. Um, it, it's, it's been a little while since I've been up here at the front, actually. I think it's probably Christmas time, and yeah, as we pointed out, I've, I've, a lot's happened in the last month. I've had a bit of COVID. I'm back. I'm fine. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's good to see everybody. Uh, we're we're going to be carrying on our study in the Book of Mark this uh, week. So if you can crack open your Bibles, um, you know have a look at your iPads or whatever it is that you do. Um, But let's turn to Mark chapter 6, which is where we're going to be basing ourselves for today. Um, So we're going to be picking up right where we left off uh, last time that uh, Graham preached from this chapter, which was uh, when Jesus sent out his 12 disciples. And so we'll start in verse 14. I'm just going to read our passage for today, uh, which is titled John the Baptist Beheaded. So I'm reading from the NIV. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for the high officials and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried to the king with the request. I want to give you right now the head. Sorry, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went beheaded John in prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So, yeah, not not, not your average kind of Sunday afternoon discussion, beheadings and and whatnot, Um, but we're going to go with it. Um, And like I said initially, we're, we're... we're sort of picking up from where we left off, but in a way we're not because we've been talking about Jesus in the book of Mark so far. And Mark, um, you know, our, our gospel writer, takes a, a sudden detour, or so it seems, you know, to talk about John the Baptist here. And you know, when I was preparing, the first thing that kind of struck me is, well, why does Mark do this? This seems a bit random almost, um, but, but nothing in Scripture is ever random. And I, I think, you know, maybe to help what helped me understand a little bit was actually maybe thinking back to the beginning of Mark and, and which we, I think we've probably been studying Mark certainly for a few months now, at least three or four months. And so if you, if you cast your mind back to the start of the Gospel of Mark, it actually begins with John the Baptist, essentially. 
And we spoke when we were first looking at the book, uh, at John the Baptist at the start of Mark, really in terms of understanding that the arrival of John the Baptist highlights Jesus' identity as the Messiah. Um, to give us a bit of a better understanding, we can, in terms of the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus, um, looking at Matthew chapter 3 verse 11 says this, these are the words of John the Baptist, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John is the, the prelude to Jesus, and what John does, Jesus does to a greater degree. And we see this again and again throughout the Gospels. So John baptizes with water. Jesus baptizes with fire. Um, <coughs> sorry, John was a prophet, and Jesus is the greatest prophet. Um, so when we bring that back from Matthew 3 into Mark chapter 6, we can look a little bit at the themes that kind of run through the chap Mark chapter 6 that we've seen so far. And I think one of the key themes in this chapter so far has been rejection. So uh, in the first few verses of, of, of Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus being rejected in his hometown. If you can remember that verse 3 mentions, um, you know, isn't this Jesus, you know, Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph, what's so special about him? Um, you know, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, the Bible says. A little later on, you know, when Jesus is sending out his disciples, he warns them against, uh, you know, upcoming and to expect rejection by the, in the towns that they go to and, and the need to shake the dust off of their feet when they go there. And, you know, clearly, you know, getting your head cut off is a pretty firm rejection. And that's what happens to John the Baptist in this chapter. Um, so tying it all together, when we think about John, as a prelude to Jesus, we can see maybe why Mark takes this detour um, to point us to that, that greater and lesser relationship between the two, between John the Baptist and Jesus. So you've got John the Baptist, who in this passage is innocent. No one is more innocent than Jesus. You see John the Baptist humiliated for no reason. Essentially, in this passage, Jesus was humiliated. We see John the Baptist beheaded and Jesus crucified. And, and that is what, that is the crescendo that's building in, uh, that we're building towards in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're, we're getting halfway there. We've still got a way to go. Um, but I think that's why Mark takes this detail here. So let, let, let's focus a little bit in terms of what we can squeeze out from this passage uh, looking particularly at the character of Herod. So I'm going to read the first couple of verses that I read today again. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that, that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. And I think context is key, and it is always helpful here. And so I think to understand a bit better, we, we probably want to understand actually who King Herod was. Uh, and probably the most important thing to know about King Herod is that he wasn't actually a king. Um, he is the son of Herod the Great, which we're probably all familiar with from Christmas time. He wasn't a big fan of Jesus or two-year-old babies. Um, uh, and you know, he actually, you know, thinking about Christmas, a lot of that behavior was from a very insecure person. And, and actually, what we see bear out in the narrative today um, are the insecurities of 
another Herod who is also not a king. And so it was referred to as something called a tetrarch, which is essentially like a, a puppet leader and that was put in charge of the region by the Roman governors. And so everybody, so Herod in our passage today knows that he's not a king. Everybody around him knows that he's not a king. And this is just at the back of his mind and drives all of the odd behaviors that we see in this passage. Um, and I think what we can take from that straight away is that um, we need to be honest about who we are. And, you know, when, when, when we chase a lie, when we chase an identity that doesn't belong to us, um, it, it ultimately ends with you know, hurting ourselves or hurting somebody else. Um, or embarrassing ourselves, <laughs> um, you know. I, I can think of it when I when I went to um, uh, so so I'm from Wolverhampton. I've, I've been here pretty much my whole life. I went to university in in Nottingham, and um, you know, it's, going to university is quite an odd thing, isn't it? Really, because you, you you go out into the unknown, and no one's really quite sure of their identity anyway when they're 18, and everyone's try you're trying to fit in with all these people that you've never met before, and I think I think my <laughs> My persona, <laughs> when I went to university, I, 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 I think I, I, I gave this image of me uh, as like a you know, in, inner city rap star kid, to be honest. So I had, I had all the hoodies on and like everyone thought, oh, wow, Bucky, he's, you know, they probably didn't think I was so cool. But they all thought, oh, wow, he must be really ghetto. He must be so dangerous. Um, obviously, I was, and I was in medical school, so how dangerous could I be? Um, but, but, um, but then, like, I, then a few years later, my, my friends, they, they, came to, they came to come and see me at home. And we're actually where I live. And so I grew up in, so I'm not from the ghetto at all. There's nothing harmful about me. I grew up in Codsall, which is a village, a really nice village outside, outside of Wolverhampton. And so my mates that came from here was like, is this where you're from, Bucky? And we were sat in the pub and there's like a horse walking past. I was like, yeah, this is a bit awkward really, isn't it? I'm, I'm not actually, you know, the, the, the ghetto rap star that I pretended to be in the first week of Freshers. Um, so embarrassing, um, but I give that, just give the example of you know, how silly it can sometimes be when we try to be something that we are not. And we live in a world of fake rap stars, but also of people that are trying to be something that they are not. Self-styled kings, much like Herod, you know, who, you know, elevate themselves far and above what they actually are but when you scratch away at the surface there's there's nothing royal or special about them and you know the the dangers of this are just so clear to see you know when we think about the influence of social media and um, which is a, which is a, an awesome thing an awesome tool but when we look you know particularly on the impact that it has on our young people and like the, the how, how widespread you know um, issues of mental health like anxiety depression and eating disorders, all of these um, link heavily into the, 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 the pressure to prove to the world that you are something that you aren't. Um, and I think what we can celebrate in church is that the, the gospel provides us with the perfect reprieve from this, you know. Jesus Christ, you know, dismisses what others think of him in his hometown uh, if you've read earlier and studied earlier with, with Graham in this chapter, because Jesus knows who he is. We're called to be like him. We're called to know our identity as Christians and live confidently in that, not trying to fit in with the crowd around. And, you know, 
what's special about you know, you know being Christian and I think what makes it different to um, the relationship with identity that the world has is that it's you know when I think about my identity in the, the eyes of the world and you know, normally it's you know I'm I'm a yam yam and I'm proud and I'm British and I'm proud and I'm whatever it is. And there's, there's nothing wrong with being proud about those things. You know, there's nothing wrong with being patriotic or otherwise. Um, but what is distinctive about being Christian is that it is based not on pride, but on humility. And very often when we see people talk about their identity in the media or outside, it's about actually, I'm this, so you're that. Whereas actually being Christian is actually based on making myself less because and I'm happy to be humble because I know that everything about me is given to me by God and is a grace and gift of God. So that is something completely different about Christian identity as opposed to world identity. And we can see that that's something completely different about identity with Jesus, identity with Christ, and what Herod demonstrates actually in this passage and chapter. And it is really easy um, for, for, for me, for anyone to talk about how, uh, you know, uh, how, how we should be humble and how we should be uh, demonstrative of, uh, of being less than others. But it's actually really hard to put into practice because the whole tide of the world is the other way. Is that, like I said already, in terms of you know, social media or whatever else, is about actually elevating and making ourselves higher and showing about how special we are. But the challenge for us as Christians is that we need to be counterintuitive <laughs> in terms of the world's thinking, countercultural, um, and against and going opposite to the tide. Um, and not afraid to actually, you know, be you know rejected by our hometown, and um, you know not afraid to um, you know be. Uh, I mean, I, I just honour the guys that go out on a Thursday so much. You know, and uh, speaking briefly with, with Graham in the week, and you know, some Thursdays I think everything seems to be going swimmingly, and some Thursdays not everybody is happy to hear what you have to say. But we can't be afraid to do that because that is what we're called to do: to be against the crowd and against the tide. I'm proud, and uh, Chris, proud in the humility of our Christian identity. Um, moving further down the passage, verses 17 to 20. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. And what, what strikes me here is that Herod knows the right thing to do. Um, he, but his need to please his wife, Herodias, leads him to make this irrational compromise in terms of I respect this righteous and holy man, but I'm going to put him in jail. Um, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and the reality is that, that, that compromise is never a feasible option when it comes to dealing with sin and uh, with the wrong things in our lives. When it comes to living with God and living God's way, 
um, you're either in or out. Um, the, the way the Bible puts it again and again and again is you're either dead or alive. It's that blunt. <laughs> you're either asleep or awake. And I know that that's something that has been said you know, from, from this pulpit. I know that you know, Graham's used this analogy lots and lots of times as well in terms of you, you can't be, you know, um, you're, you're either, you know, well, not, not for men, but the ladies, you're either pregnant or you're, you're not. You're not a, a little bit pregnant. You know, if you, if you, t- if you turn to your, your husband and say, I'm a little bit pregnant, he's not going to be any more relaxed. You know, <laughs> he's going to be quite confused. Um, and in the same way, um, these half answers... They don't, they don't count for much with God. They, they, they lead to something that doesn't make any sense. Um, just like Herod throwing um, a righteous and holy man to make he knows that he's righteous and holy into jail. Uh, and and th- we, we get led to making these irrational compromises like Herod when we try to, to lead a life where we please people and please God. And actually, it's very rare that we can successfully always do both. Um, And that is the reality. And I think that the push for us as a church is actually to make sure that we are consistently choosing God. Make sure that you are consistently choosing God. Because it's, it's not enough just simply to know the right thing to do. It's not enough to, you know, have the, the memory verses etched into your mind or written on the wall or highlighted. You have to apply them. You know, it's, it's, it's not enough to know who the right, be around the right people even, or even to um, know the right people to listen to. I mean, verse 20 says that, that Herod knew John to be a righteous and holy man. He, he liked to listen to John. He found him intriguing. He found him puzzling. And, um, you know, um, that, that's the word that was used. And um, I mean, and, and it's, you know, when you watch these sermons on YouTube and there's some awesome preachers, you can find them intriguing what they're saying, so animated. But actually, does it change your life? Does it change who you are being when you are outside and when you're not in front of your laptop listening to YouTube? Um, it's, it's not enough to have it up here. It's, we have to open up our heart to hear what, what the Holy Spirit has to say and allow him to influence our behavior. Because the truth is that you know, what we do uh, is, uh, and, and you know, it doesn't characterize who we are. What characterizes who we are in God's eyes is actually our response to sin. Our response to sin is what reveals who we actually are, what reveals our actual identity. You know? So as Christians, um, our response to sin is to repent, um, not to be proud, not to celebrate sin. Um, and when someone shines a light on our sin, that's something that sh- we should be, be grateful for and turn to God and humbly acknowledge and apologize for. But when, when people do do that for us and point out our wrongs, um, do we sweep it under the carpet? Or do, do we carry on how we're living? Or do we have the boldness and humility to actually confront it? No. Jesus, unlike Herod, is the true king. And, and his kingdom is characterized by repentance. You know, rewind a few verses into Mark 6. What is it that Jesus asks his disciples to go and tell people? It's, it's to repent. That's, that's, 
the first thing that he tells his disciples to go and tell people is to ask, tell people to repent. And that is the gospel. Um, and the repentance and confronting sin is always the first step because when we repent, when we turn to God and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for how I've lived my life. I'm sorry for these mistakes that I've made. Um, and we seek his forgiveness. It's from that, that, that first step of humility that our, our character changes, that we gain that identity that we were talking about earlier. And from that, everything else that God desires for us and for our lives follows. And it's not just Herod that we can learn from in these few verses. It's, it's Herodias as well. You know? Her response to, I said about how well we take it when people criticize us. And her response to John criticizing is to want him dead which seems a little bit extreme. Um, but I think as well, you know, we, we might not want everybody <laughs> dead, but sometimes we don't always take criticism that much better ourselves, you know? When somebody highlights to you that you've done something wrong, that you've made a mistake, um, how good are you at saying sorry and, and actually meaning it, you know? Um, I, I won't ask Joe to answer that question on my behalf. You know, sometimes I give very good sorries. Sometimes I have, I could work a little bit on that. And I, I think it's sometimes about as well. What do we? We, we can be very practiced at sometimes saying sorry in a way that doesn't really mean that I'm sorry. So, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for how that made you feel. That's not actually a sorry. Um, you know, we can sometimes word the sorry in, you know. A, carefully, legally constructed manner, a little bit like our Prime Minister in the House of Commons, that to kind of mean something but not really something else. But how, I think what we need to do is learn that, that art of apology. You know, because criticism, loving and constructive criticism is something that we should be mature enough to take on board. You know? Let's, let's resist the natural urge to strike back at those that highlight our mistakes when they are pointed out in love. When they are, and that's the key bit, when they are pointed out in love, it's not about being a doormat to people. It's, it's about actually um, recognizing that the, the, what's behind this person's highlighting my mistakes is that they love me, they want me to be better. Um, learn to swallow your pride and follow that path of humility, saying sorry when we need to, and forgiving others as well. Because that's just what Jesus Christ modeled for us. And, and after all, that, that's what he calls us to. Verses 21 to 22. Um, finally, that opportune time came. And on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughters of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And... You know, we, we, we see Herod's insecurities displayed again in these verses. You know, he puts on a banquet, which on the face of it, a banquet is always a generous thing, isn't it? You're feeding people. That's always a good thing to do, right? But actually, with Herod and his insecurities, he flips that, that good thing, and he's, he's only actually, he's invited the military leaders. He's invited the important people, the leading men, um, He's not giving to everybody. He's just giving to the people that are going to recognize him and see him as important. Um, and you see what that does to him in that when he's only honoring the important people, he fails to do what he should be doing as a, as a father. So he doesn't 
protect somebody that is vulnerable, his daughter. Actually, he uses his stepdaughter, um, and he himself, you know, uh, he par- parades his, his stepdaughter, and he himself succumbs to the passions and the emotions of that that moment to just give like a, a, a whimsical, you know, I'll give you anything that you want. And can you see how leaving ourselves vulnerable to those insecurities and, and giving in a false manner the damage that that can cause? Um, are we like that sometimes? Do we only give when, it's, when, when, we, get the, when we get the credit for it? Um, are we just as willing to be generous um, when nobody is looking? Um, are we prepared to, you know, compromise, you know, the vulnerable people in society that we should be looking after um, at times when um, our own interests can be put forward ahead of theirs? And we, we see again just starkly the difference between Herod and our King, Jesus. Because Jesus, he doesn't just invite the important people. His invitation to each of us extends to everyone and we've seen that in the book of mark already you know we've seen him welcome outcast lepers that lived outside of the city away from everybody else jesus draws them near and he heals them to the lowest of society the highest of society in the prior chapter we've seen jairus the synagogue leader you know the most respected person he's there he's gone to go and heal his daughter so jesus invitation and his generosity expen- extends to everybody, the lowest and the highest of society. Um, and we've seen him, you know, willing to, he is the son of God. You know, he's, you know, right from the early chapters, he could be, you know, the, the heavens have opened and God himself has declared who he is. But you can see him not seeking recognition at the same time in this gospel of Mark so far. We've, told, we've seen him tell the demons to be quiet. Because he, because he doesn't want to, because he is willing to actually minimize himself in order to bring glory to the Father. Herod's actions about, are about bringing glory to him. Jesus' actions are about bringing glory to God. And that is what we should model. Not, not glory to ourselves, glory to God. Um, and so with each thing that we do, even the good things, Let's weigh our motives really carefully behind those good things that we do because we know that our Father in heaven, he sees what, what, what's really going on. He sees what's really going on behind those, seeming, behind those seemingly generous things that we do. Um, you know, Luke 16, 15 says, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. These are the words of Jesus to the Pharisees. Uh, detestable, that's such a strong word, isn't it? You know? um, but it, I think it's, it's, it's there on purpose. You know? um, I don't want to be detestable or act detestably in God's sight by pretending to be something that I'm not or pretending to do good things but for the wrong reasons. Um, that's a challenge for us. Uh, as Christians, as a church. Let's do good things for the right reasons, which is for the glory of God, not for ourselves, not for a pat on the back from uh, whoever it might be, but from, but for the glory of God. I'll just finish up, just looking at the first, last few verses. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. 
She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciple came and took the body and laid it in a tomb. So the, the Greek word used to describe Herod's feeling at the request of his daughter is uh, perilipos. I think I said that, perilipos. Um, and this means greatly distressed. And in, in my reading, I, I, I found that this is the same word used to describe Jesus' feelings and emotion in the Garden of Gethsemane. So the, the, the distress that Jesus feels heading to the cross where he is sweating blood um, is the equivalent distress to Herod in this, uh, is the same word, sorry, used to describe Herod's distress in this passage. So Herod is really stressed out. Um, and this is the quandary that Herod has worked himself in to by his reckless desire to prop up his reputation and his need to show how powerful he is and his, his folly in really believing his own hype, you know, um, that he's a king, um, has led him to carefully promise something that he is not able to promise. You know, he's, he's not a kingdom, king. He has no king, half kingdom to promise or give away to anything. You know, it, it, the, the Romans are on all the land that he's, that he's over. Um, and so Herod is distressed, and this distress because he knows the right thing to do, but he'd rather kill a man uh, and a man lose his life than, he be, than him being embarrassed in front of his party guests. Uh, th th this sounds utterly ridiculous, um, uh, <laughs> but it's what happens, and we can now understand why at the, the outset of this passage in the first couple of verses that we read, why um, you know, Her Herod is um, perhaps maybe slightly uncomfortable <laughs> at the idea that Jesus might be John the Baptist. Um, he, he would have been absolutely racked with guilt. Um, and this really highlights the, the pain at the pursuit of pride uh, and the pursuit of recognition from people can bring. You know, and I, th I think as, as well as this, you know, it, it also highlights why what the things that we say are so important. And you know, this is more, more than just simply you know, uh, you know, your nan telling you you know. Um, uh, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, which, which is completely true, by the way. Um, but the Bible teaches that, you know, the tongue, in the book of James, you know, the tongue has the power of life and death. Um, and we see that vividly in this passage. Um, we need to be careful about what we say about ourselves, but also about the people around us. Uh, you know, if you go on Amazon or, or anywhere, you'll find lots of, of self-help books um, that are built around positive affirmation and, and saying the right things about ourselves 
and about you know, our environment and sometimes you know in Christian circles as well about saying things and bringing things into being with the, you know, the positive things that we say and I I agree with a lot of that that we have that you know saying positive things and being positive is really important but what I think has less focus is the importance of being silent and not saying anything at all you know Jesus was silent in the face of his oppressors um, and I think for us sometimes learning to be quiet in the right moments um, can hold so much value because as Christians we know that God has the final say in every matter um, and this should enable us to be able to resist the urge to say the first thought that comes to mind even if sometimes we feel like we're saying it for the right reasons Proverbs 17 verse 28 in the ESV says this even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips he is deemed intelligent um, we can show our intelligence and, and our faith in God by staying silent more often. If Herod stayed silent here, he wouldn't have cost John the Baptist his life. Let's pray for God's help with this and the discipline to have more faith in him ultimately um, and by our lip more often. Let's put our pride to one side. Let's not focus so much on our earthly identities, but instead celebrate the identity that God, our Father, has given to us. Um, as tempting as it can be, let's put to one side being known for how clever we are, or powerful we are, or, or influential we are, or, or um, you know, whatever else it might be. Instead, let's be known for a life that's characterized by humility and repentance, a life like Jesus. If you don't know him today, turn to him. As I said earlier, his invitation is open to each and every one of us to leave that, that pressure to be something that we're not um, and to try and please people that will never be happy, but instead to take on an eternal identity and a comfort in knowing a God that loves us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn um, from Herod and, in, and contrasting him to you. We pray that you will teach us to live lives of humility and of humble repentance, doing your will and living out your will in Wolverhampton and beyond. Amen.